0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today, in our continuing study of the book of Acts, we come to chapter 5, verse 1. Once again, as you get your Bibles, the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 1. Last time, we learned that the early believers lived in unity and shared all things with one another, giving to anyone who lacked. As an example of this, we met a man named Barnabas, who sold his land and laid the money at the apostles' feet. Let's see what happens next as we resume our study in Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Verse 1, chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias, Ananias' name means the Lord is gracious, with Sapphira, that comes from the word sapphire, it means beautiful, that was his wife. So they were gracious and they were beautiful, but their deed was ugly. And it says they sold a possession. You see, after they saw the great generosity of Barnabas and how well he was respected, they decided they wanted some of that same respect, some of that same esteem. Verse 2 And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now the word kept back in the Greek, means to embezzle. The same word was used of Achan's theft in Joshua chapter 7. And in its only other New Testament use in Titus 2.10, it means to steal, means to pilfer, means to embezzle. Now, the story of Ananias is to the book of Acts what the story of Achan is to the book of Joshua. In both narratives, an act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. And deceit will always do that. Well, now Peter confronts Ananias in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? God gave Peter supernatural insight into what Ananias had done. It is a spiritual gift. It's discussed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's the gift called the word of knowledge. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You see, this is what hypocrisy is all about, a lie. While it remained, verse 4, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now, what is the sin here? It's not that they didn't give everything. I mean, God didn't ask them to give everything. There's no command to give everything. God never demands that. God never even told them to sell that property. That was voluntary. All giving in the New Testament is voluntary. I mean, was it the sin that they kept back some for themselves? Not really, I mean, that's part of it, but it's not a sin to have some money. God gives us money. God doesn't tell us to sell everything and to live like paupers. The outward sin, and that is the physical act of sin, we could call it that, was the lie. They had vowed to the Holy Spirit and publicly in front of the congregation that they were going to sell this thing and that they were going to give it all to the Lord. Now, in verse 4, it says, You have not lied to men, but to God, which indicates that they told the congregation publicly as well. It was a lie. But behind every outward act of sin, we could call it a physical act sin, is the inside sin, right? We could call that the mental attitude sin. In other words, that secret sin. Someone said every secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. And you better believe it. The mental attitude sin was this. Hypocrisy based on a desire for spiritual status. Hypocrisy based on a desire for spiritual status. They were hypocrites. The Greek word hypokrites, hypocrite, it comes from the Greek theater. The ancient Greek actors would have masks showing happy faces or sad faces, and they would hold them up in front of their face while they spoke. In other words, they were play-acting, pretending to be somebody they weren't. Hypocrites, hypocrisy. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to be elevated in the minds of everybody else spiritually. They wanted everybody to think that they were super-spiritual. They believed that they would be applauded for a little sacrifice, and then they could save a little cash on the side at the same time. They sought to gain prestige, to be thought of as godly people. Now, it was wrong for them to be selfish. That is a sin. It's wrong for them not to give sacrificially. That's a sin. It is wrong to lie. That is a sin. But deeper and more devastating is to be desirous of self-glory and to stoop to spiritual hypocrisy and to lie to the Holy Spirit, to feign being spiritual when you are carnal to the core. That is the most insidious sin. Now, notice that Satan has filled the heart of Ananias. And you realize that Satan is behind all of this. He tried persecuting the church in chapter 4. That didn't work out very well. Now he's trying to go and and move on the inside and bring impurity to the church. But notice that it says that Satan had filled the heart of Ananias, verse 3, and yet Peter could ask why he had conceived this thing in his heart, verse 4. Do you get it? Satan can influence your life as a believer, even if you are a spirit-filled believer, But he can't do your sinning for you. You're the one who does that. Verse 5 Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. Now, don't get any crazy ideas that Peter put Ananias to death. Peter just delivered the message, and then God pulled the plug on Ananias. We don't even see Peter looking like he's angry here at all. I mean, I would imagine him deeply grieved over their conduct at this point. And Peter was probably more surprised than anyone when Ananias actually fell over dead in front of him. Now, this is another footnote. Verse 5 is not a verse to use to support being slain in the spirit. Now, perhaps you have seen certain unnamed television programs where certain unnamed people uh, maybe tap somebody on the forehead or whatever, and anyway, they fall out, or fall over and, and they say that they're under the power of God, and so on. That is nowhere to be found in the scripture. But people who do this type of thing cite two scriptures. One is in the garden when they arrested Jesus, and when Jesus said, I'm the one who you are looking for, they all fell backward. Now, number one, those were unbelieving Roman soldiers out to crucify Jesus, and I wouldn't want to use that as my proof text. Secondly, they use Acts chapter 5. No, this is being slain by the Spirit, not being slain in the Spirit. This is not a blessing. This is a judgment. They were covered over with dirt after this blessing. They went under by God never to get back up. This was a judgment of God on a very, very serious thing in the church. Verse 6, And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. That's the first example of the youth ministry in the early church. (laughs) Now, in the Old King James Version, verse 6 is very interesting because it says, The young men came in and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. It was way too late to try to wind this guy up. He was already dead. Verse 7, Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Interesting, they buried him, and his wife didn't even know it. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord?" Now, it was obvious by the way Sapphira was answering that she and Ananias had talked together and agreed how they were going to handle things. They had done it together. Listen, this gives marital communication a bad rap, doesn't it? A bad name. Don't be thinking that because Ananias and Sapphira got into trouble here that you shouldn't be talking to your husband or wife. Married couples in the Lord have a responsibility to keep each other from sin and to refuse to participate in sin together because God will hold each accountable. The concept of submission does not extend to submitting unto sin. Verse 9, Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? You see, they were deliberately testing God deliberately disobeying God and trying to see how much they could get away with. Deuteronomy 6.16 says, You shall not test the Lord your God. Then he says, Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. This was hypocrisy. Pretending to be spiritual, but not. They vowed that they would give all. You say, boy, I would never vow like that and then not do it. Well, did you ever give your whole life to Christ? Did you ever say that to him? Did you do it? Have you kept some back? See, this is a serious thing. We say, what terrible people Ananias and Sapphira were. But how many times have you said, Lord, if you will just bring an extra check in, I'll give it to you, and then you split it with him or didn't give him anything? I mean, how many times have you done that? Or how many times have you said, Lord, if I just get a little more money, I will give more, and you got more, but you didn't give more. You did just what they did. No different. How many times have you said, God, I'm going to commit my life to you. I'm going to serve you, and then you didn't do it. Just what they did, you lied. Listen, God is serious about the sins of his saints. He is serious, and this was a lesson to that church and a lesson for all churches down through history of what God's attitude is toward the sins of believers, his attitude toward hypocrisy. Well, verse 11 says, So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. That probably is one of the great understatements of the Bible. I imagine there was one fast examination of attitudes going on that day. I imagine there was some weeping and and some heart grieving before God and some hearts getting right if they were wrong. Now, this is the third miracle in the book of Acts. First, the lame man was healed at the gate beautiful, Second, there was an earthquake in Acts chapter 4 when they prayed. Third miracle, Ananias and Sapphira. Now, with that in mind, let me ask you a question. Those of you who say, I want more miracles like the book of Acts. That's what I want to see. We need to see more miracles like Acts. That's what I want. Do you really? I mean, are you really sure that you are ready for the book of Acts to be duplicated? People who say that usually disregard this incident. But this is part of the miraculous of the early church. If God still did what he did in Acts chapter 5 today, every church would need a mortician on staff, a morgue in the basement. Because think of it. The whole problem here isn't a financial problem, but it is a hypocrisy problem, which means if somebody makes a pledge or a decision or a commitment, but they are half-hearted, out they go. They die. They're gone. You see, hypocrisy kills. Now, that's the title today. But the truth is, hypocrisy lives in the church today. And because it lives, it kills Listen, if hypocrisy lives in you, it will kill your witness as others see the masks that you wear and the act that you put on. Hypocrisy will kill your joy as you criticize and analyze and judge others in order to justify your own deceit. And hypocrisy will kill your peace as you live in fear that somewhere, someday, somebody will find out who you really are. Listen, if hypocrisy is alive and will in your life today, may God help you to kill it. Give it up. Give it up so that you can be totally free. In the name of Jesus. The passengers on a commercial airliner had been seated for some time and they were awaiting the cockpit crew to get them underway. Any murmur was heard in the back of the plane, and a few passengers on the aisle glanced back to see the pilot and the co-pilot wearing these large, dark glasses, sunglasses making their way up to the cockpit. Not only that, the pilot was using a white cane, and he was bumping into the passengers right and left as he sort of stumbled up the aisle. And in addition to that, the co-pilot was using a seeing-eye dog. (laughs) Well... As they passed the rows of passengers, they were nervous. They began to giggle a little bit, just in in a nervous way. And, And, of course, the people, though, were thinking that this was some kind of a practical joke. But a few minutes after the cockpit door had closed behind them, the engine started spooling up, and the airplane exited the taxi area, taxied out to the runway. Well, the passengers at this point began to look at each other with uh, quite a bit of uneasiness, whispering among themselves, sort of shifting uneasily in their seats and gripping the armrests a little bit more tightly. And as the airplane started accelerating rapidly, people began to panic. Some passengers were praying, for the first time in their life, and as the plane got closer and closer to the end of the runway, the passengers became more and more hysterical. And finally, when the airplane had only a few seconds left of runway, the shouts of horror filled the cabin and everyone was screaming at the top of their voice all at one time. But at the very last moment, the airplane lifted off and they were airborne. Up in the cockpit, The co-pilot breathed a sigh of relief, and he turned to the captain and he said, you know, captain, he said, one of these days, the passengers are going to scream too late, and we're all going to be killed. (laughs) That's not a true story. (laughs) But it illustrates how we are influenced by others. Did you notice how greatly the passengers were influenced just by having the pilot and the co-pilot walk by? They didn't say a word, but just the shadow that they cast as they walked down the aisle had such great influence that it altered the passengers' lives. And it was the same with the apostle Peter. And now we're gonna talk about a true story. It was the same with the apostle Peter in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. And it is the same for each of us as we walk through this life, as we will see in a little bit. We all cast a shadow of influence, some for good, some for not so good. Now, Peter cast such a shadow for good that they brought people from everywhere to be influenced by it and to be touched by it. Chapter five and verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Now, the second temple was a massive compound with extensive colonnades and covered areas. Solomon's porch was an area running the length of the east side of the temple in the outer court of the Gentiles and what seemed to be a favorite meeting place for the early church. This just happened to be where the church met. You realize at this point, they did not have a church building, so they were just sort of in temporary housing. It's just kind of like meeting in a middle school cafetorium, something like that. And it says, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. With one accord. Humathumadon is the Greek word. It means with the same mind, with the same passion. Now, we've seen that word several times in the book of Acts. There was a great sense of togetherness in the early church. And the lesson is a lesson that God wants us to learn, obviously. And that is is that great things happen when the church is together in one place. The day that the Holy Spirit fell on the church was a day of togetherness, wasn't it? We saw that in Acts 2 and verse 1, where it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And then the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and they were empowered. Even after the coming of the Holy Spirit, things continued to grow because they continued together. We saw that in Acts 2.46, where it says, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. When they prayed then, great things happened in the church because they were together. We saw that in Acts 4, verse 24. It says, so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said. And after their prayer, God answered immediately. There was an earthquake. Now, I realize that some people in our culture are skeptical about their need to be together, to be in one accord with other believers, And I know that some people have been deeply hurt by uncaring, carnal, hurtful Christians. And maybe that has happened to you. But God does not want you to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Get rid of the bathwater, not the baby. Because God's way involves togetherness among believers. We see it over and over and over in the early church. But many believers in our culture don't fully understand the need to be together, that is the need to be in one accord. They don't understand that you can't be in one accord if you aren't a part of a fellowship, a part of a church. You know, I worry about the ones who say, well, you know, I'm just a part of the worldwide body of Christ and that's all I need. And they sit home and they watch so-called Christian television and they are never an active part of the body of Christ part of being in the body involves being together in an active role, both in reaching out to others as well as receiving ministry back from others. The Apostle Paul said this, Ephesians 4 verse 15, he says, "...we will hold to the truth in love, becoming more and more in every way like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Under his direction, the whole body is fitted together perfectly." As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Now, I believe because the Bible teaches that it's important for a person to make a commitment to a local church, to say, hey, I want to be an active part of this group. You see, when you come and you never commit to being a part of the church, it's kind of like two people who are living together but are not married. There may be a measure of love there, but there's certainly no commitment. There's only so much of yourself that you dare give to the other person because there's nothing keeping you from just walking out the door at any moment. I believe that it is important that we have a group of believers that we're committed to on the basis kind of similar to a marriage. Now, it's not that you cannot leave at any time if the Lord leads you to do that, but what you are doing, you're just saying to each other, hey, I'm going to be here for you. I'm here for you. I'm in here for the long haul. You see, being committed to a church isn't how much you give to the church. It's about a commitment to the other believers in the church. Well, verse 13, it says, "'Yet none of the rest dared join them.'" Well, the rest of who would not join them? Well, no doubt it's talking about the rest of the unbelieving Jews that were in the temple, those that were not followers of Jesus. You see, suddenly it wasn't so cool to be hanging around with those followers of Jesus. In fact, at this point, it was getting a little bit scary. So the people of Jerusalem took the concept of joining the church very, very seriously. After all, if the hypocrites were dropping dead, I mean, who would want to risk that? And Ananias and Sapphira incident would cut down on any kind of a casual commitment. So it says, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. In other words, the common person on the street was quite impressed by the things that God was doing within the church. Verse 14, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women." So although the church was no longer the in place to hang out for just anyone and everyone, those who had truly been touched by the Lord said, this is where I need to be, the place of power, the place of purity. Even if it's painful, even if it's uncomfortable from time to time, this is where I am to be and this is where I'll stay. You see, the book of Acts, this section and the rest of the book of Acts, illustrates how Intimately, purity and power are linked together. You know, many times we sing more love, more power, when in reality, our need is less sin and less carnality. As you know, today there is great concern that in Iraq there is possibly tactical nuclear warheads and nuclear weapons. And the world shudders at this because we do not want to see nuclear power in the hands of instability and insanity. We know instinctively that the results would be devastating. So too, it is a wise and loving Heavenly Father who, knowing the results of the misuse of power, will not give it to those who are not pure and power in the church are linked together. So it says that believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And so we see that divine subtraction, that is the subtraction of Ananias and Sapphira, that it brought more growth. If you cut off the stuff that's on the branch that's dead, if you prune it back, it will grow. So that's divine mathematics. God subtracts that he might multiply. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Now in Jerusalem, the temple area covered 26 acres, and on the eastern side of the temple in the court of Solomon, the apostles gathered with all the rest of the multitude, and they preached the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the people knew that Peter, the fisherman, would be passing on his way to the temple and there would be a limited number of people that he could touch Physically, out of the multitude that thronged the temple area, so finding the way that Peter had of coming to the house of the Lord and noticing how he came into the temple area to the porch of Solomon, then they would bring their sick, they would lay them along the way that at least the shadow of Peter might fall upon them and they would be blessed by just the passing of this great man, Peter. Was Peter's shadow magical? I mean, did it glow? I mean, could you see Peter on a dark afternoon and a dark evening just glowing? And then people say, well, here comes Peter. I can see the light. I mean, what was it about Peter's shadow that healed? Simply that it was a point of contact to release faith. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gibb teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's way.